Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right? We know it as the triumphal entry of Jesus. He's coming in as, as the king. Um, and so Luke chapter 19, verse 28 is where I want to start. And then we'll jump to verse 40 through 45, I think, or 48. I mean, jump to verse 45 through 48. All right, it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Sounds like a Jedi movie, right? He says, untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord has need of it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners had asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied. Basically, they're saying, why are you stealing my colt? <laughs> what are you doing here, man? It's not yours, right? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus threw his threw their cloak on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the, on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So they were praising him for something that he had done previously to this point. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That's an interesting phrase. We're going to talk about that today. I don't know if you ever wondered what Jesus meant by that. The stones will cry out. All right? The trees, the stones. In verse 45, says, when Jesus entered the temple court, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. They hung on his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that we hang today. We pray that our hearts gravitate to every word that the Spirit is speaking to us. You told your disciples, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says. God, I'm praying that, that our ears will pay attention to the whispers of heaven. That we would pay attention, Lord God, not trying to filter through our presuppositions, but just paying attention to what the Holy Spirit has for us today. God, I pray for the sermon. I pray, Lord God, as, as we deliver it, that it's the exact words that people need to hear. Their, their hearts be encouraged. Their lives be challenged. They, there's a, there's a, a moment when the Spirit hits, hits us, and it's just it's transformational. And God, I'm praying for, for that. I'm praying that, that we... Lord God, that we would see the manifestation of your Spirit's gifts and his anointing in this place. 
We love you. We give you the glory and the honor. In your holy name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord uh, this morning. I really feel like I, I'm going to preach this pretty quick. I, I, um, it's one of those days. Like, do you believe that? <laughs> You're like, it's true, though. Whoever said no. Um, you know, we're looking at the life of Jesus from the, from the eyes of Luke, the physician. He's, he's the analytical guy. He's the guy that's taking notes of, of every detail. And so when we look at Luke, we're, we're looking through the eyes of a surgeon. We're looking through the eyes of, a, of, a, of, a, of the medical field. We're looking through the eyes of someone that's paying attention to everything that's happening. And so I want to point out some things that he points out. And, and, you know, so, so one of the things you do when you're looking at the Gospel of Luke, the first nine chapters of Luke, he deals with our mind. He deals with our intellect, right? So when you go and read the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that. You'll see that, that Luke is really attacking uh, the, the read, or Theophilus, Theophilus his, his, his dear friend, who he wrote the letter to. He, he's, he's helping him understand the intellectual side of Jesus, helping him understand that. And in the middle part of Luke, he's dealing with the will, right? The, 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 the commitment of the person to be committed to Jesus. I'm, I'm going to make a commitment to follow Jesus, right? So he's kind of setting this up in a very systematic way, saying, listen, in order to follow Jesus, you really need to count the cost. It's kind of what Jesus does, right? He's like, hey, consider the cost before you pick up your cross, if you're going to follow me, don't just, don't just come because you feel emotional. Don't just come because I healed you. Don't just come because I've given you some blessings. No, no, no. If you're going to follow me, I need you to think about, I need you to rationalize. I need you to, to reason with yourself to go, Hey, do I, do I want to follow this man? Right? Luke does that. And then when you've done that, then engage your will, engage your commitment, engage your discipline, be, be a disciple. Lay, lay, lay down your life so that you may find it. Pick up your cross. Crucify the flesh. Right? All that's discipline. All that is, is, is self-will going, I, I'm going to make a choice to follow Jesus. He's not going to do it for you. Right? He's not going to just make you a disciple. No, you have to choose that. Follow means you, you're actually following. You're, he's leading and you're walking right behind him. But then we get to this last part of Luke, the 19th chapter on. And when, when we talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it's the beginning of the last week of his life. That's where Luke picks up in the 19th chapter. Jesus is now coming to the last week of his life. He's coming, he's called Palm Sunday, right? He's coming to Jerusalem and he spends a week in Jerusalem, right? And on Friday, as we know, as historians tell us, as we know, Friday is Good Friday. Jesus, Jesus is crucified. He dies on the cross and he's resurrected the third day, which is the Sunday, a week from today. So Luke is not so much concerned about our intellect. He's not so much concerned about our will and our commitment. When he gets to this latter part of his letter with Theophilus, you know what he wants to do? He wants Theophilus to feel. He wants emotion involved in this. Because when you start thinking about the last week of Jesus' life, you start thinking about what's about to happen. You start reading and putting yourself in the storyline. It's not a celebration. There's, there's really nothing to celebrate because Jesus is actually going to die. They don't know it. 
they, they've been told that he's going to be raised on the third day. They hadn't seen it. They've been told that if you destroy this temple, I will resurrect it. They've been told that he's the resurrection and the life. They've been told those things. But now Luke is like, I want you to feel his joy coming into Jerusalem. I want you to feel his compassion when he weeps over Jerusalem. I want you to feel his pain when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to feel his agony when he's there being whipped and on the post. I want you to feel the nails going through his head. Like he wants you to feel what Jesus is going through. It's a very dramatic moment. It's a very dramatic scene. And, and we can sometimes just read through the scripture and go, oh, this is just another story. It's the end of Jesus' story. But Luke is not letting you do that. He's, he's, really, he's really giving you this existential encounter with Jesus. It's, it's not just pick up your cross and follow me. Now it's everything I've told you is about to come to fruition. Everything that I've predicted about my life is about to come to fruition. Everything. All the prophets Everything that you've heard since you were little, because that's the Jewish culture. They've taught them about the, the Davidic line. They've taught them about everything, about the coming Messiah. All that that you've been hearing for centuries and generations from generations, it's all coming to fruition this week. It's crazy. And so there's some things that I think Luke points to us that, that we can really pay attention to. And, and so there's three, to be exact. And, uh, and the, first, the first one is that, that he's the actual king. He's not just the king. He's the actual king. He's not a king. He's king of kings. And, and, and for us, again, we get to look back into the scripture and go, yeah, he's the king of kings. It's great. But imagine... Imagine what the people are doing here, because I read it out of Luke when he says the people started joyfully singing. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you think they just made up this rhyme, this, this, this new song? No, not at all. What they're doing is they're singing Psalms 118. They're singing Psalms 118 to Jesus. So, so what Luke is saying is that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey, depending on, on what translation you have, he, he's coming in as a king. And they throw their, their, their cloaks down and they take these palm trees and they're waving them everywhere, right? And all this is happening because he's riding in as a king. The behavior is not that, that they knew he was a king. It's not why they did it. Culturally, the only one who rides in on a cult is the king. Is the king. So they started singing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalms 118 is being declared. And and. And Luke records that his disciples were so excited about this when the crowd were singing this. Why were they so excited? Why were they so excited? Were they excited because they remember that he's going to die? Were they so excited because they remember that, that his temple was going to be destroyed? Like, why were they so excited? I'll tell you why they're so excited. They're excited because they think that Jesus, Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. It's like, this is the moment 
we've been waiting for, right? This is the moment that, that, that we've been gathering around you, Jesus. Like your teachings have been great. Your miracles have been wonderful. And we know that, that, that you can do this. You're going to overthrow. You're going to overthrow the Roman Empire, right? Well, how did they get that? Well, because Psalms 118 is about the Davidic Messiah. It's about the, the king that's coming from the line of David. That, that they know the prophecies have been told that David's throne will always have a king upon it. And it's been, it's been vacated for some time. And now here's Jesus claiming to be the Davidic king, claiming to be the Messiah, that he's going to one, be the one to sit on that throne. Everything's coming to order for the disciples. Everything's coming together. They're like, yes, we're going to do it. Because that king... The king that sits on David's throne, that king, he's going to right all the wrongs. In other words, though we are under the Roman Empire tyranny, that king's going to set us free. That king is going to release us from this tyranny. That king is going to deliver us from, from this evil. That's the king. He's the one who's going to put it right. He's making everything correct. Well, what's he correcting? Well, what they don't know even though they've been told, is that what he's correcting is the sin. He's correcting death. He's correcting what has been brought upon the cosmic atmosphere of the world, not just the human world. He's correcting everything. Right? So it all starts in the, in the golden age. It starts in Eden. It starts in paradise. Everything was great Ad, until Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to rebel against God. God had created everything for their purpose and their need, right? And he puts them in the garden. He puts them in the garden. And then when they decide that they want to disobey God, everything falls apart. And God says, before he kicks them out, he tells them one last thing. He says, before I dismiss you from the garden, there's, there's one last thing you need to know. I know everything looks terrible right now. I know you've just been disciplined. I, I know that there's going to there's gonna be bad days and there's going to be suffering and it's going to be hard to work the ground because the ground has been cursed because of you. Like everything has been cursed because of sin. That includes the world. That includes the earth. It's, it was cursed. And he says, and so there's going to be weeping. There's going to be mourning, right? Because, because birth is going to be painful. And, and death is going to happen. You're going to lose people that you love, right? All that is happening. And, and so Jesus, God is like, but I'm going to tell you something. One day, there's going to be someone. And that someone's going to come. And they're going to crush the head of the serpent. And they're going to put everything back into order. They're going to take on the serpent, right? So Genesis 3.14 says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust of the days, right? And I will put enmity. Here's, here's the first messianic promise. Here's the first promise that, that the line of David, even though David has not been born yet, is going to have a king on his throne. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
And if you go back and read that and you put a little flair into it, you put some dramatic into it, it basically what God is saying is, I'm going to send a champion. I'm going to send a hero. I'm going to send someone to deliver you. Because what you don't know yet is that when you start living your life on this earth because of sin, everything's going to change. Everything's going to be harder. Everything's going to be tough. Pressures of the world, is going to, they're, going to, they're going to sink you. The pressures of relationships, they're going to pull you down. The pressures of just living on this earth, it's going to be hard to get food to come out of the ground. Like, that's what sin did. It did all that. And God says, but I'm going to send a hero. I'm going to send someone that's going to take on the great serpent. And not only is he going to take him on, but he's going to crush his head. He's going to defeat him. It's the return of the king. The return of the king. And it's been a heroic story ever since. Ever since. The Greeks wrote their legends on it. And if you study, you know, Homer, you'll see, you'll see the, 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 the outlines of, of Jesus Christ throughout literature because there's always someone to come and rescue the damsel in distress, right? There's always someone to come and rescue the city that's under fire, right? There's always someone that's going to come. And, and it starts here. It started in Genesis that God said, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send him and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to be the king. Psalms 24 says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The psalmist says, he says, the Lord almighty, for he is the king of glory. Paul tells Timothy, he says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, with God, which God will bring about in his own time. What's he going to bring about? The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that's who's going to do it. The blessed and the only ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul recognized Jesus as the king to come in God's own time. Paul recognized Jesus to be the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And he tells Timothy, you, you need to keep this command. The book of Revelation tells us that they will, they will rage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And with him, he will be with the called and the chosen and the faithful followers. Jesus is the king. And it's not because we say he's the king it's not because we just decided to king him king. It's not because you and I had a vote in the matter. No, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he decided to ride a colt into Jerusalem. He was making a statement, and the statement that he was making is that I'm the king. No one rides a colt into Jerusalem unless they're the king. They ride in because... They're going to conquer the city. They ride in because they won a big battle. But nonetheless, the king rides in. And Luke makes that very clear. They started singing, he's the king. He's the Davidic Messiah. The second thing Luke makes very clear is the transformational king. He's not just any king, but he's a king that transforms lives. 
He's a king that, that, that doesn't just want to rule over you, but he's a king that wants to actually change you. He wants to change you. Transformational means his ruling power does something in us and through us. And there's two interesting observations in the text that I, that I want to point out. And so it says, Luke, in Luke 19, 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As they approached Jerusalem in the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on the day that which brings you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. And so Luke is now pointing out this, this, this worship, the idea of worship. He's saying, listen, I, Jesus is telling him, I'm not going to rebuke the, my disciples, but even if I do, even if I tell my disciples to stop singing, nature's going to sing. Nature's going to sing. Well, why is nature going to sing? Well, Isaiah prophesied it. Isaiah 55. Verse 12 says this, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before the Lord and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isaiah is saying, listen, there's going to come a time when the king, the true king comes back and he restores everything in life, restores everything. And one of the things that he's going to restore is nature, right? Nature is going to, is going to sing unto the Lord. There, there's, this, there's this tendency about sin and salvation that I, I think we, we, have, we have maybe bought into that salvation is just this individualistic item that is just, it's just for me and just for me alone, just for us, the, the human race, just for humanity, right? In other words, we think of salvation as, as, as this idea that I'm unhappy inside. I have no peace in my life. I have this guilt that I'm wrestling with. And so if I give my heart to Jesus, well, then he comes and he, he takes away the guilt and he gives me this inner peace and he gives me this, this, this sanctity of mind, right? That's what he does. And he forgives me of my sins and he fills my life and then he's going to take me away to heaven. We have this idea of, of salvation and sin and that relationship as, as such. But can I introduce to you a, a different perspective about sin and salvation, their relationship to one another? I believe the biblical understanding of it is that sin and salvation is that, is that they're, they're connected on a cosmic level, not just the individual level, not just, not just with humanity, but, but when, when Adam decided to disobey God, the entire earth was cursed. The Bible tells us that the ground was cursed. And so when humanity rebelled against our king, it affected everything spiritually, psychologically, cosmically, socially. Affected everything. Everything broke down. That's what sin did. Sin caused the world to die. Sin caused us to die. Sin, sin is that is that terrible? It's that wicked that everything is dead. You see, but we were made for the king. We were made for the king. The heavenly king. Before he became the earthly king. He's like, we were made for the heavenly king. And we were made to serve the king. When God made Adam and Eve, it was to serve him. When God made Adam and Eve, it was to worship him. 
When God made Adam and Eve, it was to adore him. It was to obey him. We were designed for the king. We're created in his, in his image. Everything about our design, everything about our life is, is made for him. I, I need us to understand this. It is made for him. And so here's the illustration. When, when, when you have an empty gas tank, you don't fill it with water. Right? When you need to nail something, you don't take your, your watch off your wrist and nail the nail. When, when you're trying to cook a meal, you don't use a space heater. You're asking for disaster, right? The design. So the space heater wasn't made to cook and the watch wasn't made to hammer a nail. And water was not made for a, 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 the, the gas tank. No. So when we take something, here's the idea. It's this C.S. Lewis idea, right? When we take something that was designed for one purpose and use it for another purpose, we pervert the original design. We pervert it. That's what sin does. That's what sin did. It perverted our relationship with God. It's not the same. It wasn't, it, it's not functioning the way God had intended it to function. And because it's not functioning the way God intended it to function, we are living in this perverted reality until someone comes and restores, recalibrates, regenerates, redeems the design. Are you getting this? It's like, it's like Jesus' lordship restores everything back to its original design. And so the Bible says in Isaiah 55, when the king comes, when the ruling power of the king shows up, everything that he makes, it blossoms. It reaches its full potential, right? It becomes everything it could be, everything that it was designed to be. That's what happens when the lordship hits the life of an individual. It's what, happened when, it's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. He restores everything. And so we're transformed. He's a transformational king. In other words, Luke, I mean, um, Romans says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Second Corinthians says this, now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. We're transformed. There's, we're not the same. Galatians 5, says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such. There is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified their flesh with the passions with its passions and its desires. That's transformation. Transformation. When we live with the Lordship of Jesus in our heart, that means we're changing. That means everything about us is going to change. That means the trees and the stones under the ruling power of Jesus, they will dance and they will sing. That means the ruling power of Jesus is, is going to change everything and restore everything. Here's another observation about the transformational king. I think it's very cool. Is in the passage of his kingship when he rides the colt, 
It says, he says this, he says, go to the village ahead of you. He's talking to his disciples and you will enter it and you will find a colt tied up. It'll be tied up there. He says, no one. And this is very clear. Remember the details. The details of the story are very critical, right? He says, no one has ridden it. No one. Now, I'm sure, you know, we, we, can, we can look at this from an allegorical point of view and go, you know, that's, that's really the, 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 the purity of, 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 of it, right? It's Jesus, the king. He's riding a pure animal that has never been ridden. But that's not it. That's not it. I want, I want to give you a new perspective about this. So Jesus took this colt that had never been ridden. And, and so I want you to think about this. Those of you that are, that, that are, that are country folk, right? Those of you that, that live out in the barns and out in the ranches. Those of you that, that have an idea of what it means to, to ride a horse, right? What happens when you decide to get on a horse that has never been ridden? Yeah, you're, you're not going to last very long. Think about this. Jesus says, there's a colt. And when you go find it, it's never been ridden, right? It's kind of warning him, don't get on it. Only I can ride that thing. Bring it to me, because I need it. And when the owner asks, you just tell him the Lord has need of it. And so he gets on this colt, right? It's never been ridden. And, and, and if you get on a horse that's never been ridden, well, what, what does he do? He bucks. You know, you, you, before you can ride a horse, you have to break it. Right? That's the language of the cowboy. That's the language, right? It's like, in order to ride a horse that has never been ridden, you have to break it. Right? And so that idea of break, it's like this metaphor, right? You're going to break what? You're going to break his will. You're going to break everything about what the horse is, 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 is accustomed to, that no one's ever been on his back. And so when you break this horse, it now gives permission. He gives you, the horse gives you permission to ride on him. Right. So there's this image that Jesus is pre presenting by way of Luke. Luke's like this horse has never been ridden. And so Jesus calls for it. And so when you get on a horse, you better know what you're doing if it's never been ridden because it's going to buck you off. But not only does Jesus get on the colt that has never been ridden, but he rides it. Listen, listen to what Luke says. He rides it through the city with people screaming at him shouting at him, yelling at the top of their lungs, glory to the highest. This is the king of kings, right? This is the king of heaven. Can you imagine not only riding a colt that's never been ridden, but riding a colt that's never been ridden through a crazy crowd? My goodness, you talk, if you've ever been around horses, if you've ever been around a spooked horse, it's over. It's over. I'm telling you, Luke wants you to feel this. And, 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 and when you read the story with that lens, it comes alive. And you're like, wow, Jesus is riding a horse that's never been ridden. Not only is he riding a horse that's never been ridden, he's going through a crazy crowd that's singing and dancing and throwing palm trees in front of the horse so that he can, the horse can walk on it and throwing their cloaks on the ground. Man, this horse should have gone crazy by now. One commentator puts it like this. He says, in the midst of the exciting crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the one who calms the storm. Therefore, the event points to this peace of the restored kingdom. The restored kingdom, not just humanity 
but everything, right? This is what Isaiah 11.6 says. 11.6 says, the wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling. I don't know. What's a yearling? I asked Pastor Gilbert what a yearling. A year, is it yearling? Is it a yearling? What is, what's a yearling? Is that like a little baby deer? I don't know. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. Is all this going to happen? I don't know. But here's the metaphor. Here's the imagery of the Old Testament. It's harmony. It's peace. It's, It's unity. It's the world and the cosmics and everything about it is coming together because the king restored it. The king restored it. That's that's the message that Isaiah is getting across, even when he's talking about the trees and the rocks crying out. Are the trees and the rocks really going to cry out? I don't know. But what I do know is that when Jesus shows up, my sinfulness and my heart gets transformed. So there is love. There is peace. There is forbearance. There is long suffering. There is the goodness that comes from heaven that resides in me because that's what the king does. He transforms. Us. So listen, it doesn't matter how incredible your life is. You need the king in your life. It doesn't matter how much of a wreck your life is. You need the king in your life because the king puts everything back into its rightful design. And Jesus, he gets on the cult. And what happens? He doesn't break it. This is, this is powerful. Stay with me. He doesn't break it. He doesn't break the cult. He, he heals it from its fear. I want you to think about this. When animals attack you because they're afraid, right? You've watched Steve. The old Australian before he got stung with a uh, stingray. Thank you. Like he's like, snakes don't want to bite you. They're just scared. Things don't want to attack you. They're just scared, right? We, we have all these people that, that, are, that are experts in the, in, in the field of, of, of animals. And they tell you, animals just scared. And Jesus, he doesn't break the cult. He heals it from its fear. The cult is absolutely fearless in the face of a screaming crowd and Jesus in the saddle. Listen, it's the image that Luke is painting here. You need to see this. When Jesus sits in the throne of your life, when Jesus comes as the ruler of your life, listen, Jesus, he's the driver in the seat, right? Jesus take the wheel, right? His power doesn't break you. It doesn't coerce you. It doesn't beg you. It doesn't make you do something. You know what it does? It heals you. It heals you. Jesus doesn't want to whip us into submission. He doesn't want to break us into, into loving him. You know, no, no, no. What he wants to do is restore what sin has done. Sin broke us. Sin gave us a bill of lies. 
Sin told us that it would be fun. Sin said, if you do this and do that, then you'll have everything that you want, right? As Solomon would say, that sin is fun for a season, but that's what sin does. And at the end of the day, at the end of the bridge, at the end of the tunnel, at the end of the rainbow, whatever metaphor you want to use, sin will always leave you wanting. It will always break you. It will always crush you. It will always demand more than you could ever give. But when the king rides you, when the king sits on your throne, when the king comes into your life, he doesn't want to break you. He wants to heal you. That's what he wants to do. Oh, come on, church. I thank God for a king that wants to heal me. He doesn't want to destroy me. He doesn't want to throw me back because he doesn't think I'm not good enough. Even though I look at myself in the mirror, I see all the inadequacies. I see all the failures. I see everything that I've ever done in my life. I say, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your healing. But the king says, I'm going to heal you anyway. Oh, I'm transformational. I thank God for sending a transformational king because then when, when he does transform my life, he, he looks at me and he says, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? What are you fearing? Because whatever it is that you fear, I can heal. I can heal. You feel that? I don't know if someone needs to hear this. Someone needs to hear it. They need to receive it. Whatever you fear, he can heal. He can heal. You fear anxiety, he can heal you. You feel depression, he can heal you. You fear a lack, he can heal that. Because he's the true king. Only a true king can do that. You fear loneliness, whatever it is, he can heal you. Can we just pause for a minute? Heavenly Father, I don't know what you're doing at this moment, but I know your spirit is speaking to people. There are people that are living in fear. You didn't give us a spirit of fear, but you gave us a, gave us a spirit of, of love and a sound mind. Lord, I pray a sound mind over your audience over your church, over people watching, a sound mind, a mind not controlled by the flesh, a mind not controlled by the philosophies and the ideologies of this world, but a mind controlled by the spirit, a sound mind. <laughs> we need your healing, Father. what he did. He healed. He healed everything. And when he comes into our life, we're willing to give absolutely anything because he healed.
I'll give you my absolute. He says, listen, when he comes into our lives, he wants absolute authority over us. He wants absolute obedience. He wants you to submit to him absolutely everything. Everything. Why wouldn't you? Here's the third thing, and then we're done. Is he's, he's a paradoxical king. So he's, he's not only the actual king, the true king, and he's not a transformational king only, but he's paradoxical. Jesus drives me crazy with this. It, it really does because it, it messes with my mind. It messes with... With, with how I see things, right? So Jesus rides into the city, you know, because he's the king. That's what kings do. Kings ride in for their coronation. They ride in because they conquered cities. They ride in because, because that's what kings do. They, 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 they show off. As the young person would say today, they're flexing. That's what he's doing. He's flexing. He's riding in on this colt that's never been ridden. He's like, I, I want to see one of you do this. I want to see one of you get on a horse that's never been ridden, go through a screaming crowd and see how you fare, right? It's amazing because, because at this moment, he's coming into the city as Luke records, right? And then he stops and he sends his disciples ahead and he's waiting and he goes, bring me that colt. He goes, from this moment on, I'm not walking because if I walk into the city, I'm part of the crowd. I'm just like every other person. But if I get on that colt, well, now I'm a signifier. Now <laughs> I'm symbolic. Now I actually have people's attention because if I walk in, I'm like everyone else and I'm not like everyone else. But if I get on this cult, then I am very different from everyone else. In fact, I'm willing to take the risk because when you do that, in, in our day and age, here's, here's the idea of what that looks like. It's like you trying to walk into the White House saying you're the president. That's not gonna get you very far. Not very far at all. Imagine Jesus' day at the White House, man, some guard will stop you and you probably won't, it, it just send you away and you're, you're on your way. In Jesus' day, when you claim to be a king and you have a kingdom, that, those, are, those are fighting words, those are threatening words. The current king of the place will come take your life. It's, it's not the same. And we can't really comprehend that, right? But, but we see it in movies. We see this idea of what one king, his kingdom being threatened, how he responds to that, right? Well, Jesus is saying, I don't care of the consequences of my actions. I'm, I'm showing you something. I'm riding in. And, and I'm riding in on a colt because I have power and authority. And here he, he points and he's, He's like, I know exactly what, what this looks like. Because his disciples are probably thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, you can't ride in on a colt. You can't ride in through this gate into the city on a colt because that's, that signifies everything wrong. Like, like, where's your kingdom? Where's your army? Where, where's, where's your riches? Where's your gold? Where's your power? Where's your authority? Where's all that, right? His, his, his disciples are like probably wondering, like, this is probably not the best way to, to win the hearts of the kingdom, Jesus, meaning the citizens of the kingdom, right? And Jesus is like, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. He says, on one hand, I'm the king. I'm the king of kings. And on the other hand, I'm gonna ride a colt. 
He says, on one hand, I'm the strong king, but on the other hand, I'm a weak king. Strength and weakness combined, power and vulnerability combined, royalty and accessibility combined. And here, here's what he's saying when he does this. He says, listen, I, if I've come to deliver you from the hands of the Romans, then I'm going to ride a war horse. That's what I'm going to do if I come to deliver you from the hands of the Romans. But I did not come to deliver you from the hands of the Romans. I've come to deliver you from sin and death. If I've come to deliver the Jews from the colonial masters, then, then I will ride a war horse in strength. But I've come to save the entire world from sin and death. I've come, this is what he's saying, I've come to crush the head of the serpent. That's why I'm here. You don't realize it, but God told your forefather, Adam, and he told Eve that I would come and I would strike the, and crush the head of the serpent. That's why I'm here. Everything is, 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 is this crescendo to this one moment. So he's, he's saying, listen, I come in strength and humility. It's paradoxical. I come, I come in strength and weakness. That's what I do. That's how I show up. That's how I'm flexing. I come as a servant king. I come as a sacrificial king. I come as a living king, even though I will die. It's like everything has to be backwards with Jesus. He's like, listen, if you want to live, you must die. You want to receive, you must give away. Like everything is backwards, right? And nothing has changed here at the very end of his life. He's like, I'm the servant king. I'm the sacrificial king. I'm the king that's going to lay down his life. But the paradox still continues because he rides into Jerusalem as the king. But you know what he does? He goes straight to the temple. Now, a king would not be found in the temple. That's where priests go. You have to understand the cultural dynamics that's happening here. The king goes straight to the palace. That's where the king goes. Jesus doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? Well, he gets upset and he's like throwing over the money changers and he's getting, he's cleaning out the house of the Lord. And he says, listen, and he starts quoting scripture, right? He's like, the house of the Lord should not be, it shall be a house of prayer and worship, but not a den of robbers, right? I mean, you really can't fault the guys. It's Passover for crying out loud. And if you know anything about Passover, it's a celebration. And you, if you know anything else about Passover, that every Jew came from all over the known world at the time to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And when they get to Jerusalem, well, they need a sacrifice. They need an animal. They need a lamb. And that's where all the money and vendors come from. They are providing the sacrifice so people have to pay for their sacrifice so that they can take it to the high priest and the high priest sacrifice it for them. Now, what is, what is Passover? I'm not sure if you understand what Passover is. Passover comes from Exodus. I don't know if you remember the story of Moses when Moses is coming out of Egypt. Before he comes out of Egypt, there's 10 plagues that God puts on Pharaoh because Pharaoh's stubborn heart. The 10th of that plague was the death angel. And the death angel would come and he would take the firstborn of every household, whether it be Jew or Egyptian, did not matter. The death angel was going to do that. The only thing that protected your life was a sacrifice of an innocent lamb. 
there are certain ways that they had to do it, but here's, here, here it is in a nutshell. They would sacrifice a lamb. They'd put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And that signified, it was a signifier, right? It was a symbol to the death angel. This house is protected by the blood of the lamb. Thousands of years later, they're now celebrating. And Jesus rides in as the king. He goes straight to the temple. He clears out the temple and he teaches for one week straight. He's teaching in the temple every day. So what is he doing? He's, he's showing the, the, the known culture of his day that he is the lamb. He's like, he clears out all the animals that could be sown, sold for sacrifice. He's like, I'm the only lamb that can cover the sins. I'm the only lamb. My blood is the only blood that can be on the doorpost of your heart from this moment forward because he was about to die. So in one, in one week, Jesus comes in at the king. He comes in as, and then he goes to the temple as the priest, right? And he's the prophet, and then he's the lamb. Like, like we talked about this. We're coming full circle. If you remember the, the sermons in the beginning, like the only people that got anointed in scripture was the king, the prophet, and, and the priest. They were, it was, a, it was a sign that this was God's man. You do what he says. And Jesus, he's in the temple. And he's like, I'm God's man. Do you know the last time Luke has him in the temple? It's when he's 12. The last time Luke has him in the temple. And what's he doing in the temple? He tells Joshua or Joseph and Mary. He says, I'm doing my father's business. Jesus comes years later. At the age of 33, he's in the temple. What's he doing? His father's business. What's his father's business? That God so loved the world that he, God, gave his one and only begotten son. That's his father's business. His father's business was to send his son to die on a cross for us so that he would take the judgment of the father upon his life. Jesus is saying for one week, I am the high priest who goes and meets with the Father. I am the lamb whose blood is gonna cover the doorposts of your life. I am, I am he and I am the king. I am the resurrected king and the living king. All this is, is being said. And if you're paying attention to Luke's language, it is being said to Theophilus and it's being said right in front of us that we serve a mighty Savior, as Revelation would say, he is our baptizer, our healer, and our soon coming king. You see, today started that journey into Jerusalem. I, I, don't, I don't know what you need from Jesus, but I can tell you, I can tell you, that every one of us needed our sins forgiven. Every one of us needed the blood on the doorpost of our heart. And Jesus, he provides that. He provides it.